You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Be seated, please. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, by whose resurrection death has been swallowed up in victory. Yesterday our topic was apologetics and Scripture. We learned that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God has given evidence for belief. He has called people to believe in Him based on the objectivity of His existence, and particularly in the incarnation of His Son, who's verified His claims to be God in the flesh by His resurrection from the dead. We learn that apologetics is biblical. It's biblically commanded in 1 Peter 3.15. Be ready always to give a reason for why you believe. Apologetics deals with the head side of evangelism, intellectual objections that people have. But wait a minute, aren't you up the wrong tree? Don't we know that evidence doesn't matter to people who don't believe? Doesn't Jesus say in Luke 16 specifically, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if someone rises from the dead. Seems like the Bible doesn't look very, prob- very favorably on giving evidence. People won't believe. They refuse to believe even if someone rises from the dead in their very presence. How much more proof do people need than a resurrection from the dead? Why does evidence for the resurrection not persuade some? That's because of the condition of the human heart. Well, apologetics deals with intellectual objections to the faith, and evidence doesn't seem to do much. Apologetics seems like a pretty sorry endeavor. God's more interested anyway, we hear, in the heart than He is the head. The head is this rather useless appendage above your neck that gets you into all kinds of trouble if you use it seriously in your religious life. What about the condition of the human heart? God loves the human heart because the human heart is so naturally nice. Is that the biblical picture? The biblical picture is that the human heart is also deeply infected. The human heart is sick and desperately wicked, according to the prophet Jeremiah. People will twist facts any way they want to twist them. So that makes apologetics even doubly more useless, it seems. You give evidence, people won't believe it. You appeal to their heart, it's deeply fallen. What is the point of this? And oh yeah, Just to add to the misery, 
I've read in Acts 13, verse 48, that as many as were appointed to believe, in the Greek text, predestined, believed and were saved. Oh, wonderful. Now you have predestination. Another reason not to tell people the evidence for Christian faith. So the human heart is, as Luther said, incurvatus in se, turned in upon itself. And then you add to that predestination. And what is the point of even being involved in apologetics? At best, some theologians say, apologetics can simply show that somebody else's view is inconsistent or factually incorrect. But nowhere, they say, does the Bible encourage giving affirmative evidence for the case for Jesus Christ. At best, you're left preaching at people and surely not reasoning with them. In short, maybe at best, apologetics has a negative function. It is defensive in nature, knocking down the foundations of false religions and philosophies. So some argue. But does showing that 150 religions are wrong, or 500 religions are wrong, or 5,000 other religions are wrong, necessarily establish that Christianity is true? It does not. Just because you establish that Mormonism, Islam, Scientology, and my favorite in Santa Barbara, Druidism, are factually untrue, does not establish Christianity ipso facto as it must be true. All religions may be false. But certainly, Roman Catholicism and Christian science, which was what I was raised in for 18 years in California, can't both be true. Further, how do we deal with this issue that isn't the Holy Spirit the sole sufficient cause of a person's salvation? Why mess with apologetics and get in the way of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit zaps people without any evidence or facts. He is the sole sufficient cause of one's salvation, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. And Matthew 28 tells us to go and preach the Gospel to everyone. So we have this seeming utter confusion. We have predestination, and yet we have the Bible saying, go preach the Gospel to every creature. We have John 1.12, which I read to you to start but as many as received Him. It sounds like there's something that I do. 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, I have become all things to all men, that I might save some. Sounds like there's a human activity involved in this. And in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, when he was zapped and the, the cells opened up, Ask Paul, how shall I be saved? 
And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Sounds like there's some human activity. In short, how does apologetics deal with this problem, seeming, of human free will and reason being utterly fallen and at the same time calling people to believe what Luke says in Acts 1 as the many infallible proofs? Do we have to choose between who's right, Billy Graham and the hour of decision, or John Calvin and his doctrine of election? Best to picture this whole question of the role of apologetics in evangelism in terms of a house. The house imagery may conjure up in your mind C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and the house through which the children entered Narnia. What are the characteristics of the house of salvation as presented in Scripture? First, the house of salvation is always larger on the inside than it is on the outside. Second, the entrance into this house is very, very narrow. A small, narrow door on which is written John 14:6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by Me. Jesus Christ, by His own admission, is not a way. But once in the door, this house is huge and expansive. Becoming a Christian is a broadening experience, not a narrowing experience. Third, the road the traveler gets to the house of salvation on is full of potholes and roadblocks, both external and internal to the traveler. External potholes are things like intellectual objections to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The kinds of things that apologetics is designed to address. But there are also internal roadblocks to believing in Jesus Christ. Every one of us is fallen. Some of us and all of us are fallen in different ways. We have those peculiar sins, faults, and weaknesses of a deeply fallen people that prevent us from exercising trust in Jesus Christ. The fourth characteristic of this house is the signs that are hanging on it. The sign hanging on the outside of the house of salvation announces Acts 16.31. Believe and you will be saved. John 1.12 But as many as received Him to them He gave the right to become children of God. The external signs on the house call for personal commitment and belief and decision. Fifth, once inside the house, there is a different sign on the house of salvation. You thought it was all human effort and decision that got you into the house of salvation. I've got news for you. The Bible then talks with a different story. Inside the house, 
are the initials SDG, solely, Gloria Deo, glory to God alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. That being the faith. It is a total gift. You also learn that God planned this out from all eternity. You have the comfort of Acts 13.48. As many as were predestined to believe, believed. It is announced as comfort, not as a source of terror. You are told in no uncertain terms after you're in the house that under no circumstances did you save yourself. It is all the work of the Holy Spirit, not of the will of man, nor of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but, according to John 1.13, of God. We don't cooperate in our own salvation. We learn that once we're in the house of salvation. An illustration might help. A man is drowning in a raging river and someone throws a life preserver in a rope and drags him to land. We would think it bizarre if the television interview of that saved person went as follows. Did you notice how I grabbed the life preserver? It was brilliant of me. I put it over my head and cooperated in being pulled to shore we would think something clearly strange is wrong has happened. All merit would go to the person saving that drowning individual. And think of your decision for Jesus. Some think that their faith saved them in their decision for Jesus. The key is not how much faith you have, but the object of your faith. Luther gives the illustration of faith as the hand that grabs a purse of gold. The purse is full of the merits of Christ. Some people have strong faith, a strong, steady arm like Peter and Paul to hold the purse. The woman caught in adultery has a weak and quivering arm, but she holds the same purse. The key is not the strength of the arm, the strength of your faith, but the object of it, the merits and benefits found there in Christ our Lord. So it is with faith. The key is the object. I may ardently believe and have faith that my 777 plane to Paris in July is piloted by a competent, licensed, trained, professional, commercial pilot. But if in fact, the cockpit is full of four-year-old children running the plane, my faith is useless. Now, some Christians get into all kinds of trouble messing and reversing these signs up. They switch the signs in the house of salvation with disastrous consequences. The first group, I'll only mention two, and you can find yourself in neither because they're nasty. The first group I'll call hyper-Calvinists. So if you are a Calvinist, you can deny that any of this applies to you. The hyper-Calvinists take the sign that's on the inside of the house, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Acts 13, 48, 
and put it on the outside of the house and announce it as an aspect of evangelism. Hyper-Calvinists aren't very strong in apologetics. Why? There's not much reason to do apologetics. There's very little interest in evangelism and foreign missions because God's going to do it anyway. And so you can sit on your derriere and wait for God to zap someone. That's the hyper-Calvinists. But there's a second, other problem group that switches the signs. This group takes the sign that is on the outside, which said, believe and be saved, Acts 16.31, and they take it and put it on the inside of the house. We call that second group, or I call it, hyper-Arminians based off of a theology of a contemporary of John Calvin's in the 16th century, the Arminians reacted negatively to Calvin's very rigid theological system. Part of the problem is Calvin actually got a law degree. Uh, that was always a problem. Luther spent one year in law school and said, uh, I think that's going to send me to hell. Um, so in Calvin's rigid theological system, the reaction to that was in Jacob Arminius's Arminian theology. The re reaction was to go all the way over to total freedom of the will in all areas. The result was that people, once they got in the house, are encouraged to think that their decision saved them. And the way you confirm the value and legitimacy of your decision is how your life matches up. Arminian bodies like the Wesleyan Holiness Movement and many Pentecostal movements get the same people saved every Wednesday night. The reason for this is there's no objective salvation in the cross of Christ won at Calvary's cross and confirmed in His resurrection. Instead, one is turned to look inward. Arminians don't value apologetics, hyper-Arminians either, because whether one stays in the house or not is not based on an objective fact like Christ's finished work. It all depends on your decision and on your ability to live consistently with that decision. Well, what can we say? How do you reconcile all of this with apologetics? A couple of things we'll say in closing. First, both hyper-Calvinists and hyper-Arminians are right at certain points. Calvinists are right that Scripture teaches that salvation is wholly a work of God. The verses on that are a deep source of comfort to us especially in dark hours where your Christian life seems to be condemning you, not justifying you. But our Arminian brothers are correct that the doctrine of election is not to be confused with the proclamation of the Gospel. The fact is, divine election and man's will are not put in airtight compartments in Scripture. We too should not force our presuppositions on Scripture that require us to deny verses 
so that our treasured theological system is not threatened. The fact is, the Bible views salvation through different lenses depending on whether one is outside the house or inside the house. Some verses look at salvation from the perspective of eternity, <clears throat> from inside the house, and what is happening theologically. Therefore, you get Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Acts 13, 48, John 1, 13. Grace alone, total gift, not built on merit. You are born of God. This is biblical for those who are already in the house. Yet there are also other verses that look at salvation from the lens of outside the house of salvation. From that perspective, believe now and be saved. Acts 16.31 Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And as many as received him became the children of God. Thus it definitely sounds like there is some place for a volitional decision. Well, to end, ultimately though, Craig, how do these two fit together? And here is the answer from Scripture. Beats me. <laughs> More importantly, I am not required to resolve this. And if you do, you will be tempted by logic or a theological system to come down on one side or the other and to minimize verses. There is a theology that is, recognizes this situation, uh, recognizes that we are to believe like Calvinists, but act in evangelism like Arminians. I won't mention it other than it being confessional Lutheranism. Um, that was a free advertisement. Uh, in summary, first, apologetics is consistent with evangelism. It has both a negative, defensive role and a positive role. It shows the errors of false religions and philosophies and also presents the affirmative case for believing the claims of Christianity, which we'll discuss tonight, what that evidence in fact is, how the case is built legally beyond a reasonable doubt, and why lawyers have been so historically moved and attracted to Christian truth claims. Second, any work that seeks to bring <clears throat> the fact of the resurrection and Christ's saving work to people has the Holy Spirit in it. Apologetics is fully consistent with the work of the Holy Spirit when it focuses on what Scripture centers on. Third, the Holy Spirit is not limited to operating in the realm of the head. The psycho, we are psychosomatic unities. We are both heart and head. But we are, should not deny the importance of dealing with intellectual objections to the Christian faith. Fourth and finally, if anyone does become a Christian, <clears throat> no man can take credit for this. All we can say is, glory be to God alone. Apologetics is a human work in that man does it. But so is preaching. And no one argues that preaching is a mere human work because the preacher does not simply recite Scripture. So back to our original question to make your time this afternoon worth it. Is Billy Graham right or is John Calvin right? The answer is both are right. 
we should never pit apologetics against evangelism. Nor is it apologetics instead of evangelism. Nor should we ever pit apologetics against evangelism as a, uh, an effort to get intellectual arguments won. Instead, we should see apologetics as evangelism when it is centered on the evidence for the case for Christ. So go and present the evidence for Christian belief to all creatures. In the name of Jesus Christ, our advocate with the Father. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.